Thanks for listening to the Get Over Yourself podcast brought to you by Carol Fit Stationary Bike Program 8-Minute Workouts to Get Super Fit. Perfect Keto, the cleanest, highest potency ketone supplements. MOFO, male optimization formula with organs to boost testosterone. Let's get checked at home testing kits. Try lgc.com. Almost heaven, beautiful compact home use sauna kits. Brad's macadamia masterpiece, the mind-blowing nut butter blend. And check out bradkearns.com slash shop my personal selection of favorite products for health, fitness, and peak performance. And here we go with the show. Listen to your own voice. Preserve your own voice no matter what, no matter how intense of a program or a situation you're in with a coach, teammates, whatever. You always have to answer to yourself first. The male's primary biological drives, which are to pursue challenges, solve problems, master one's environment, uh, uh, often in the quest for the deep biological drive uh, for sexual gratification. So now you can get both of these on the screen such that the male is no longer incentivized to engage in real life challenges. Why hassle with a high maintenance girlfriend (laughs) or uh, an actual job when you can go and conquer in the video game in a nice controlled environment that gives you that amazing instant gratification payoff. The greatest happiness and fulfillment in life come when you cultivate and express passion, curiosity, enthusiasm, and pursuit of the highest expression of your talents without compromise or excuses. Hello, listeners. This is Brad Kearns. I thought I should introduce myself after 200 shows. Yes, we are hitting that milestone. Maybe it's with this very show. Who knows? No, I mean really introduce myself and do a show where you can learn about my life journey to date, get a sense of where I'm coming from, hopefully get entertained with riveting storytelling, and come away with uh, a greater appreciation for what I'm trying to do with this podcast and my writing and everything else I'm communicating to the world. And I'm highly inspired to do this show by uh, my former podcast guest, Luke Story, host of the Life Stylist podcast and the fantastic show that he produced as episode number one. So I'm uh, 200 shows behind him. But what a great way out of the gate to listen to this guy and what his goals were for the podcast. And he takes you through a riveting life journey, a crazy life story, far crazier than I can ever offer up because it include his dark past in Hollywood and drug addiction and going to the, the depths of uh, pain and suffering and pulling himself out of it and going on this amazing journey of health and biohacking and uh, health optimization that he's known for today. Uh, he's told the story with great honesty and vulnerability. He didn't pull anything back and it went on for enough time to where you really felt like you knew the dude uh, by the time you listened to his very first episode. And learning that deep personal story helps frame everything else he says on all additional shows. I also give credit to Abel James and his awesome website, a former podcast guest. The Fat Burning Man podcast is one of the most popular and longest running shows. And he does a great job on his website uh, with a link, uh, learning who Abel is and what his background is and his musical journey coming into his health journey. And you get a great background and insights about Abel James, the person. Uh, I posted a lengthy article called Meet Brad 
next to my bio, which was the facts and the wonderful achievements of winning many triathlon races. Uh, but it's kind of like you, you've read enough of that to um, to gag uh, on the planet today. And so I thought I would just uh, get out the keyboard and start writing about the kid who was obsessed with sports when he grew up and uh, got in trouble a fair amount in school for not paying attention and distracting people. And then uh, off we are and running with the uh, Meet Brad story on bradkearns.com. So the show here is framed by that article, and I'll be quoting from it extensively, but I also get to do color commentary as we take the journey through my own life. Are you ready? What do you think? Let's do it. All right, here we go. The first section of the written article is titled Distraído, and that means distracted in Espanol. I recently discovered my second grade report card in a box in my mom's attic. In the comments, the teacher wrote, Bradley is a bright student, but tends to distract the other children and disrupt class. <sighs> when I read it, I kind of freaked out because those characterizations played out in middle school when I was called into the principal's office, high school, same thing, and into adult life as well. Here I am distracting you with this meandering Meet Brad podcast. I am an athlete, an author, and a podcast host interested in ancestral health, that's primal, paleo, keto, carnivore, and so forth, athletic peak performance, and how to live a long, healthy, happy life. The description of the Get Over Yourself podcast, if you read it on iTunes, it says, covering health, fitness, peak performance, personal growth, relationships, happiness, and longevity. Sports have been a centerpiece of my life since I was a little kid. I had the good fortune of experiencing a childhood that predated the digital age, and it was filled with nonstop outdoor physical activity and adventure in the place known as Los Angeles, California. Okay, well, we were roaming air-conditioned shopping malls instead of pristine forest or windswept coastlines, but at least we were active and creative. My passion for sports was unpolluted by today's disturbing influences of overpressurized competitive environments and over-caffeinated helicopter parents. The environment of hands-off parenting and a coaching system at my school that was not regimented left me to nurture my own focus and competitive intensity, and I feel that was way better than if I had been pushed along. I know a lot of people credit the wonderful coach that helped them straighten their life out when they were a 10th grader and going south, uh, but for me, I felt like it was a gift to just kind of discover my own path. And in the case of my athletics, my journey into uh, elite endurance sports in, in running and then later in triathlon, uh, it was not a straightforward path. So it started uh, in middle school and they would of course have races and uh, everyone had to time themselves for the, uh, the fitness assessments and so forth. Everyone's familiar with gathering the kids and having a race and I did really well. I was in a very small pond and um, I was the fastest guy. And so that was a really nice thing uh, for my self-esteem and forming an identity as an athlete particularly in endurance running where I, I could excel. And then uh, I started to pursue this further and I'd sign up for these big uh, 10K races around Los Angeles on the weekend. And I discovered that there were a bunch of kids my age that could kick my butt. And so venturing out past the small world where I was the, the, the fastest guy uh, was quite discouraging. And you can just show the um, flawed mindset of the young kid who, you know, was all about 
uh, getting the recognition, uh, winning. And then when I met my match, instead of kind of being inspired by that competition to get better, I kind of gave up and got discouraged. And so by the time I went to high school, uh, I had the potential to be uh, a quality distance runner coming in from, you know, doing pretty well and actually training in middle school. Uh, but I instead wanted to be a football player or a basketball star. Uh, but I went to a huge uh, public high school in Los Angeles called Taft High School, 3,000 students in three grades. And uh, suffice it to say, I was not the caliber nor the size. I think I entered high school at uh, 5'4 and 115 pounds. So I was not a candidate for those uh, major sports teams. And I ended up just defaulting over to the cross-country team because I had to do something uh, and I wasn't going to be putting on the other uniforms. Uh, But I was so disenchanted with my experience in middle school that when we would head off for a workout, the large cross-country team, maybe there's 50 people, you depart from school and you jog along the street and get over to the park or whatever the work out is, uh, what I would do when we departed was I'd jump into the bathroom at the gas station and I'd hide until everyone passed and then I'd exit and go straight home and have some waffles with powdered sugar and syrup and butter and then go out and play on my trampoline and just be a regular kid rather than being uh, a serious runner into a high school program. I was not ready and that's just the way it was and luckily the coach, the program was not regimented serious enough to notice that I was missing all the workouts. Uh, Then we had this big meet uh, all the way across Los Angeles, getting on the bus and dozens of high school kids there. So they had a two-mile frosh soft race uh, in the hot, hilly, smoggy park in the uh, harbor area of Los Angeles. And what, there's 100 kids on the line from all these schools, crazy, hectic scene. And what happened was I went out there and uh, got into this race and I won the thing. And uh, the guys on my team didn't even recognize me because I hadn't practiced. And so that was a funny one. Uh, They maybe weren't sure I did the whole course, but uh, it was sort of a turning point where I'm like, you know what, maybe this running stuff is pretty good and uh, maybe I should get involved and uh, make an honest effort. Uh, But still, that first year as a cross-country team runner uh, in sophomore year, the first year of high school in Los Angeles, um, I wasn't highly committed. I would blow off workouts easily. Um, I wasn't performing to my potential. I was just doing okay and enjoying the social aspect of being on the sports team, but uh, nowhere near uh, someone who was, you know, really serious and and going for the potential and focused and uh, being guided by uh, a regimented program. So what happens at that age is that you are uh, increasingly influenced and uh, directed by your peers. And so being around these runners, uh, I had the incredibly good fortune to uh, associate with some some guys who were really getting serious and committed and loved it and were, you know, on the path. And those would be Dr. Steve Deitch, Dr. Stephen E. Cobrain, and Dr. Todd Pearsons. Wow. Uh, all I had to do was hang around the scene and get sucked in. And Deitch in particular, who went on to an uh, excellent college career, he was an NCAA Division II All-American runner at UC Riverside and competed for Team USA in the World Junior Cross-Country Championships against the greatest runners from around the globe in the junior division that's under age 20. So uh, Deitch, Cobrain, Pearsons, what would happen would be uh, we'd be part of the high school running program. And then uh, Deitch from a neighboring high school uh, would invite us over 
over uh, for the evening to hang out and uh, get in another run. So he'd say, come on over, we'll jog down to the yogurt store and get some frozen yogurt. That was the heyday of frozen yogurt time. Uh, but with Deitch, every single workout was gas pedal floored down pretty far. And so there was no such thing as an easy jog. And we'd get over there and be running, uh, you know, six minute miles to the yogurt store. And this was after uh, a pretty good practice in the afternoon. So when you start doing doubles as a high school runner, you start to uh, move your way through the improvement progression really quickly. And then Cobrain was from a, uh, a legendary athletic family in Los Angeles. Uh, his father was an extremely high-performing runner, and he ran in a pack of other adults uh, at 5.30 in the morning year-round uh, at the park in the San Fernando Valley. So uh, Dr. Stephen, well, he wasn't a doctor then, he's a doctor now, uh, he would pick me up at 5.08 in the morning and he would drive over to the park and run with the father's pack. And these guys were, you know, epitome of the the joy of running and distance running and the running boom of the 70s and 80s. And they'd laugh and joke and we'd run these extremely difficult eight-mile runs in the hills in the morning. And so what that enabled us to do in the afternoon was to grab an ice cream and show up to uh, cross-country or track practice and just uh, check the box that we attended the class. But we didn't need to run because we'd already done so much in the morning. So it was like uh, that devil's bargain of, am I going to wake up at five in the freaking morning as a high school student and bang out eight miles in the hills uh, so that I can have ice cream in the afternoon. Uh, but that was, you know, really fun and starting to escalate the training and getting into a real runner support group of my peers. And you know what? It wasn't anything that was uh, really intense or serious in that manner that you might think so, that I see so much today with young athletes getting pushed so hard. Uh, this includes my son who loved basketball as a little guy in elementary school. And so you're compelled to go into this AAU tournament basketball world uh, because the level of competition is preparing you for the high level of uh, competition in high school basketball. And in the old days, it was the park leagues, the community leagues. And then you'd show up in high school. And if you were tall enough, you got picked for the team. And now it's so accelerated, even at the youngest of ages, and they're practicing and practicing. And he almost default by default had to focus on one sport before he was even in high school. Crazy stuff. Uh, just because of the escalation of the intensity of the, the practice and the uh, competitive experience. Uh, in our case, it was more of a social thing. So we'd hang out. We'd have fun. We'd run down to the yogurt store. Yes, it was a tough workout, but then we'd sit around the yogurt store and you know make it a social evening where the, uh, the training intensity or the commitment level to a distance running was incidental to the social experience. Yeah. And so it was driven by those wonderful attributes that I talk about on the show now, passion, purpose, and a healthy process-oriented approach. And pretty soon, uh, I went from the guy hiding in the bathroom at the gas station to qualifying for the National Junior Olympics finals in the 1500 meters when I was 16 years old. Yes, Deitch and I traveled to wonderful Lincoln, Nebraska to stay in the dorms for a week in the middle of stinking hot summer so we could run circles around the track in the intense humidity of the Nebraska summer and try to get distinction in the National Junior Olympics. Whoop-dee-doo. And by my senior year of high school, I was ninth place in the California State High School Championships in the 1600. And this is some pretty badass competition in high school in California, man. We're talking about the state meet California. You go there and you will see 
future Olympians for sure. And the annals, the alumni of the California State High School track meet, oh my gosh, there's Olympic gold medals left, right, upside down in every event. And what was cool was I had no business being there. So I I qualified for the state meet uh, down in the city of Los Angeles championship. Uh, But when I got there to Sacramento, uh, I noticed in the, uh, the paperwork that I was seated 24th out of 27 runners in the state. And Boy, I got on the track with nothing to lose. I was there to, you know, pursue personal peak performance, maybe get a better time than the time that I had achieved in the uh, the city meets. And I'll share more of this later in my triathlon story. But having that uh, positive attitude, that pressure-free mentality, because I was so far behind uh, the standard set by the leading runners in the state, uh, it gave me that uh, magic of being in the peak performance zone where I was unencumbered by my own mind and my fears and insecurities and the, the pressures of having to perform. And I surprisingly uh, made it to the finals and I got a time of 4 minutes, 19 seconds, which was a lot better than my, my previous time. Uh, so... Uh, I was harboring big dreams by that time of being a collegiate runner. I signed up with UC Santa Barbara uh, to go continue my career and progress. And that was a big, fat disaster. And it was really devastating to me personally that I'd put so much time and energy and passion into running. And when I got involved in a college program that was dysfunctional on many levels, uh, all I did was get sick and injured. So when I showed up there out of high school, I did pretty well on the varsity team. I was the fourth or fifth man all season long, uh, made it to the uh, the Pac-12 PCAA championship race with some of the best runners in the world from the big schools in the Pac-12. Uh, but then uh, the, the environment was one that fostered competition amongst teammates rather than a supportive environment and a lookout for the individual. So what would happen is, like on the cross-country example, uh, you have 22 kids uh, going out for the team. And of course, they're allowed to work out and you have a big pack and it's nice to have that volume, but only seven uh, runners qualify to travel to a meet, which is the coolest thing to do ever, Uh, get the cool uniform, represent the school get the attention of the ladies, etc. So you're on the travel team, you're scoring points, you actually count, and then uh, most of the other kids uh, totaling over 20 uh, are just there for the workouts, and then they're allowed to run in the home meets, but they might be running with no shirt on because they're not official members of the team, okay? So um, you're vying for one of those seven spots, and you're looking at all the people around you that you train with and you're trying to be friendly with, but it easily becomes a situation where uh, you're trying to one-up your actual teammates. And then here's what would happen, which was just the worst and most ridiculous thing, was we had a very carefully orchestrated training schedule by the coach, who was a top runner himself, and you know, we're going out there Tuesday and we're doing 14 hard miles with hill repeats and we're trashing ourselves pretty good to stimulate that fitness breakthrough. Uh, And, you know, everyone's just wiped by the end of that workout. And so you show up the next day for practice and the coach says, all right, guys, sing songs, cruise around campus, look at the girls, you know, go down the beach, jump in the ocean, come back, whatever, you know, very easy. Take it easy today. 
what would happen invariably is that one of those 22 kids, one or more, would have missed the previous day's practice because they had an engineering lab or because they uh, got tied up and uh, couldn't do it. And so on this jog that was supposed to be the recovery day, what would happen when 20 kids are singing songs and cruising around campus and looking at the girls on the beach would be the pace would imperceptibly escalate, escalate, escalate because there were a couple fresh bodies in the pack that were driving it up to a six-minute pace. And who wants to get dropped from the big pack singing songs and being part of the action uh, just because it's supposed to be a recovery day? But that was my path to getting sick and injured five seasons in a row before I was completely disgusted with the whole thing. Uh, This is another section of the written story on the website. It's called High Rising. As a young person who formed my identity as an athlete and attached a fair amount of my happiness and self-esteem to the results of my workouts and races, being forced to the sideline at UCSB was my first awakening into a more evolved perspective. I realized that my great strengths of focus, discipline, and competitive toughness could also very easily lead to my downfall via overtraining, a flawed results-oriented mindset, an ego-driven, unregulated competitive fire that left my best performances in workouts instead of saved them for the starting line. Yes, I'm blaming the pack mentality and the kid who didn't show up for the previous workout, but of course I could have been smart enough and self-reliant enough to just back off and do my own easy run if the pack was going too fast. I always had that uh, you know, ability, but that's asking a lot for a 17-year-old kid coming on to a college campus and running with the the older, more established kids for the first time. You want to like put your ego out there every time. You can't help it. And over the years, I've had the good fortune to uh, talk to, engage with a number of young, elite uh, athletes, distance runners, uh, triathletes, and whatnot. And I always say, listen to your own voice, preserve your own voice, no matter what, no matter how intense of a program or a situation you're in with a coach, teammates, whatever, you always have to answer to yourself first. Yeah, I just couldn't get that uh, at that time. But boy, it was building uh, building me into uh, that self-reliant athlete that uh, came along later. So when I realized these strengths could easily lead to my downfall, uh, a flawed results-oriented mindset, ego-driven, unregulated competitive fire. Yeah. Okay, file that away. Hey, I want to tell you about Schwank Grills. This is a revolutionary portable gas infrared grill that uses the exact same heating technology as the world's best steakhouses. You heat up to 1500 degrees Fahrenheit to grill the juiciest steak you've ever tasted in as little as three minutes. Can you believe it? That's right. You do not have to go to those crowded, noisy, super overpriced steakhouses anymore when you have the same technology in your backyard. And the Schwank portable infrared grill is not just for steak. You can make chicken wings, hamburgers, seafood, lobster, vegetables. I make salmon in three minutes. They even have a pizza stone accessory. I want you to visit their very informative and mouth-watering website at schwankgrills.com. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-K. Everything you cook, faster, juicier. The speed is so important, so convenient. Uh, There's a drip tray on the bottom, so you let the juices drip down. I love the bison burger, the venison burgers. That's my game. And then you can add a mixture of butter, spices, whatever you want, into the tray. Pour it back onto your meat or your salmon for a huge improvement in flavor. 
Are you getting hungry? I am. <laughs> Let's go to schwankgrills.com, S-C-H-W-A-N-K, grills.com, and up your home cooking game. This is a one-of-a-kind grill. I have a great discount code for you, of course. It's BRAD150 to save $150 off your purchase of a Schwank grill. So when I finally walked away from the program in disgust, I borrowed my brother's bicycle, who's six three and a half. I'm five ten and a half, and I got that bike. Uh, got a ride from my uh, my home in Los Angeles back up to school. It took a weekend and went home. And I announced that I was going to ride my bicycle back home uh, the following weekend, 103 miles. So no training, a bike that was way too big for me. But I got on that bike and pedaled, and it was one of the greatest days of my life. It was my 19th birthday, and the idea was that I was going to pursue this exciting new sport of triathlon. And that was my uh, exit into the running obsession with the college running team. And now I had become uh, a new kind of athlete with new goals and a fresh new start. So yeah, I went straight to the bike shop. I don't know if it was the same weekend, uh, but I went and got myself a properly uh, properly sized bike and joined up with the UCSB cycling team, which was really fun because I learned how to be a cyclist and ride in a pack and do all these fun new things that I had been uh, never, never acquainted with before because I was just running, running, running. Uh, it was a great turning point in life to immediately pivot from a distance running obsession into the fresh challenge of triathlon. And it helped me build the fantastic life skill of going with the flow instead of forcing things to happen that aren't naturally meant to be. It wasn't going to work for me as a runner at UC Santa Barbara. I accepted that with a smile on my face and got on that dang bike and pedaled and pedaled and pedaled till I got home. So anybody who's... Uh, you know, stuck in a rut. Boy, what a way to break out of a rut is to, uh, you know, figuratively speaking, uh, ride away from it for the whole entire day. I think it's important to see everything that you experience as an opportunity for learning and personal growth, especially struggles and setbacks. No feeling sorry for myself, right? I jumped right back on the bike. At the end of my senior year as a business economics major at UC Santa Barbara, a great tragedy occurred in my life graduation. <laughs> uh, so what happened was I was teleported from the beach and bike life at one of the coolest schools in the world right there on Campus Point, UC Santa Barbara. And all of a sudden, where am I? Boom, rush hour traffic in Los Angeles, working in downtown LA for the world's largest accounting firm. It was then known as Pete Marwick and Mitchell. It's now called KPMG Lefty Mickelson. So boy, that was not a long career there because I was absolutely miserable from the very first day. I lasted 11 and a half weeks. And then I finally met with my manager and announced my retirement from the firm to pursue a career as a professional triathlete, which was an absolutely ridiculous notion at that time, since the sport was so new, it had very little economic opportunity, unless you were one of the very best guys. And I was literally miles behind the professional racers with the uh, amateur events that I'd participated in uh, to that date. 
Yeah, it was totally ridiculous on a practical level. But, you know, now these days we're talking about the power of manifesting and I've had guests on the show talk about it. It's very interesting to me. Some people discount it as silliness that or, or misinterpret the, the whole idea of uh, visualizing your future and, and creating it or making it happen. Uh, but I realize now, you know, when I was uh, reading those triathlon magazines on the job, uh, sneaking away to the bathroom to read another article because I was so bored at work uh, and I was in envisioning this opportunity for myself, and I was going to make it happen no matter what. I was just relentless in my desire to move on and, and do something besides this miserable position. No offense to those people who are on the right path and start out the, at the accounting firm and build their career, and that's their calling. But for me, I was a misfit, and it wasn't working for me at that time. So... I had to uh, had to uh, make the move. I remember talking to my dad. We went out to dinner, and I announced that I was going to retire from the firm, and um, he thought that was a, a surprising choice. And his perspective of professional athletics, I think, was framed with the, the major sports of the NFL and the NBA. And he said, look, you got to understand these professional athletes are freaks. They're just, you know, they're not normal. They're, they're uh, you know, one in a million humans. And I don't think that you should uh, see yourself as a very viable option. Uh, but I, I sort of, no matter what he said, even though his influence is really strong on me, uh, I knew a different story in my mind. And I had split times. You know, you get reports from the triathlon races of how you did in each event. And I was already running at a level of the very best pros. And I knew that I just needed more time to pedal my bike instead of working in the accounting firm and get to the swimming pool and swim and swim and swim and try to get better. So my parents were very supportive. They thought it was kind of cute and exciting that I was going to try this. And and I think uh, we all thought it was maybe a sabbatical year from my career path that I'd worked so hard for uh, to, to establish uh, when I went to college. Uh, but the sense of freedom and excitement I felt leaving that downtown LA high rise for the last time was one of the great moments of my life. I felt like I had escaped from jail. And again, uh, this is now uh, a couple years later from my, uh, my story writing home from UCSB, but I did the same thing. I retired from the accounting firm and pedaled 100 miles the very next day. Uh, in the public accounting world, this is known as a detox. <laughs> anyway, uh, I had no training for that. My legs felt like rubber, but I was on this new path and it was such a wonderful time in life because I was able to do what I loved every single day. And I didn't, again, I didn't have these harmful outside influences like economic pressures at that time, uh, judgmental or negative friends or family. I didn't have FOMO or FOQ, that's fear of missing out or fear of keeping up. I wasn't even troubled by my pedestrian finishes at my first local professional races. I was simply overjoyed to pursue personal improvement and compete in the same field as the world's best multi-sport athletes. Even though I wasn't in the same area code at the finish line, I was right there in the mix of it. And it's such a cool thing in triathlon is you can line up right next to top athletes. Not like you can do that in the NBA or, or you know team sports, but we were right there. And then you get a report uh, in the mail showing just how your time compared in each event to the top guys in the world. So every single day was filled with hours of difficult workouts, napping, eating healthy foods, what we thought were healthy at the time, right? Studying race results, plotting the travel and competitive schedule, and talking training and competitive strategy with my main man, my sidekick for the whole way on this triathlon journey, Andrew McNaughton, frequent guest on the show. And we've had many shows on the Primal Blueprint podcast, Primal Endurance podcast, talking about endurance training. And it was so great to have someone who had 
the very same disposition, life goals, life situation. And so we would be out there all the time just, you know, working through these challenges and dreaming of the same thing. We dreamed of success, fame, and fortune, but, and a big but here, we were consumed by a tremendous passion for the day-to-day experiences of being professional athletes. It was a simple, focused, and purposeful life that brought deep satisfaction and contentment, even when things were difficult, frustrating, or exhausting, right? We didn't need the fame and fortune and the, and the, uh, you know, the tangible success to be totally enamored and, and satisfied, really, with this lifestyle. So that distinction there that we dreamed of it and we tried very, very hard to get it, but we enjoyed the journey along the way. That's where the magic is. We weren't just out there training all day long for the fun of it. No, we wanted to make money. We would disparage uh, the other athletes and how much they were making when we could make nothing and get turned down by sponsors. And we just wanted it so bad and we were relentless and competitive, but it was all enjoyable. It was all in that... uh, positive, optimistic, mutually supported context. Okay, so the next section of the story is called King of the Desert. At the end of my first season as a pro, Andrew and I got on the plane and traveled to Nice, France on the French Riviera for the World Long Course Triathlon Championships. That was a two-mile swim in the Mediterranean, a 75-mile bike ride up in the French Alps on an extremely difficult course up to these medieval villages, going down death-defying descents and climbing again and again to another village, and then a 20-mile run on the Promenade des Anglais. That's the main road following the coastline in Nice, France. So this was a really exciting event and kind of a uh, a checkpoint for our careers because we'd been training really hard and continuing to improve, but we really had nothing to show for it. And we were just a tiny tick below uh, a breakthrough that you can uh, experience and then realize that you have some business uh, racing with these guys and pursuing a pro career. But we had that glimmer in our eyes, a a hope and a dream that maybe something special could occur and we could compete on the world level. And oh my gosh, the day was incredible. I had a wonderful performance in the swim and on that hilly bike ride. And I got to the run and I felt great. I was having the race of my life and we were getting near the turnaround. So mile 10 of a 20 mile run. And I was all the way up running uh, with some of the top pros and I could not believe my eyes. These are the legends that I'd read about in the magazine magazine only nine months prior when I was working at the accounting firm, and now we're duking it out on the French Riviera. One guy named Ken Gla, who's one of the greatest triathletes of all time, he competed 30 Hawaii Ironmans in a row. Uh, But back in the day, he was one of the top long-distance athletes in the world. And so I'm running with this guy, Gla, one of the heroes of the sport, and I decide that he wasn't going fast enough for me, so I decided to drop him, and I moved all the way up into ninth place. I was a little bit uh, out of my league at that point, and I sustained a very severe bonk. And endurance athletes know that's when you run out of blood sugar. And so you will feel fine one moment, and then moments later, you'll start to get dizzy and lightheaded, and you won't be able to uh, continue at all. So I was crashed and burned on the curb, and then uh, walking up to the next aid station where I inhaled all the uh, sugar items that I could. But I 
my race was destroyed at the halfway mark of the run. And it was pretty devastating. I ended up walking the whole thing because I wanted to finish and I got 126th place instead of dreaming of that top 10 that I could taste right there. And then following the race, that was supposed to be the end of the season. I got a train pass. I went all over Europe by myself. Uh, I would ride the train at night and then I'd get out and my sightseeing strategy when I got to Rome in the morning or Florence or whatever the city I was in was I'd just run all around the city. So I was still kind of chomping at the bit, uh, wanting for more action and wanting to continue my pursuit of fitness uh, while I was on vacation in Europe. And if I found a swimming pool, which was a rare opportunity, I would get in that pool and I would swim as fast as I can until I was totally exhausted because I knew I wouldn't uh, find another pool for a long time. Uh, Toward the end of my 30-day journey around Europe, I was running out of both money and food. And it's such a funny story to tell now. My mom's listening, I'm sure, going, what the heck? What does he mean? Uh, I I could have, you know, uh, probably helped that. But back in the day, you know, all there was was uh, a random payphone here and there. If you wanted to call the States, it was a big ordeal. You had to have all these coins. So I was literally running out of money and food with uh, maybe three or four days left uh, before my flight ticket home uh, from Paris. And so he, he can't even imagine that today. Like if my kid was in Europe and he was running out of money, he would text me. I would probably then launch the Venmo or the PayPal app and hook them up for the next three days. Uh, We can work it out later when you get home. But this was a different time. And so uh, I returned home from this supposedly vacation at the end of the season. And I dropped uh, some some body fat uh, that turned me into uh, the lean, mean, highly fit athlete from all that running through all those foreign cities. So all I needed to do was get back on my bike that I'd missed entirely. And I jumped on that thing and I rode... uh, over 300 miles a couple weeks in a row and we realized that there were a couple more races left on the calendar that I could enter and kind of keep this dream alive and keep this season alive. And I mean that because I was running out of shekels by that time. I was delivering pizzas in the evening, but a year's a long time to go pop in for airplane flights when you're really not making any income whatsoever from the sport. And winter's coming, so that means there's no races, no opportunity to uh, dream about making money, whether I could or not. Uh, At least there was a race on the calendar during the summer where we could say, hey, maybe if I uh, got in the top 10 here, I could get a check and Uh, pay off some of my credit cards. So uh, my back was getting pushed against the wall. And there we go with a brand new race that was announced out in Palm Springs, California, called the Desert Princess Run Bike Run World Championships Series. And this was a really special event that came out of nowhere. It was the first time ever that organizers had uh, created a long-distance duathlon race. So run, bike, run, there's no swimming in the winter. Uh, so they you do a initial run, and then a bike, and then another run. And Typically, these are uh, uh, low-key events that are short in duration, so they might have a a 5K run and a 20-mile bike ride for people that just want to have a brief introduction into uh, the sport of duathlon, or they called it biathlon back then. Uh, So this was a major event that they organized as a showdown between the world's number one ranked triathlete at the time. His name was Scott Molina, the Terminator. I believe he is still the winningest triathlete of all time for the number of victories on the pro circuit, and 
And there was a specialist in this uh, this offshoot sport of duathlon named Kenny Souza, and he was undefeated, and he would train with the best triathletes in the world. He couldn't swim, but he was a run-bike-run specialist with no peer and was one of the most exceptional endurance athletes on the planet. He could train with the very best and run and bike with the very best. And so in this little sport, he was absolutely dominant. So for the first time ever, Souza would face top triathlon competition like Scott Molina. And so Molina number one, Souza number one, and we were so excited to travel out there and compete on this really difficult race course of a 10K run, 62-mile bike that's 38 miles, and another 10K run. So I was just happy to uh, be part of the action. Uh, we would debate endlessly who we thought would win between Souza and Molina. And you know, I went ahead and plotted out my own race uh, inside the, um, the bubble of the, the big professional event out there. Uh, so I made a key calculation in the hotel room the night before the race that is if we were going to run a total of almost a half marathon, right? We're going to run 6.2 miles at the outset, then do a very tough long bike ride, and then another 6.2 miles. I decided that on that first run, I should run at a sensible pace that I could hold for, let's say, doing a half marathon. So I stuck to my plan, but everyone was so excited about this brand new event and the top athletes and the showdown that they just took off at the gun and went crazy on that first 10K run. So I came into the, uh, the transition area where you change from running to biking, and I was almost in last place in the professional field, and I was so far behind the pack of the contenders that I couldn't even see them. So uh, then what transpired over the 38-mile bike ride, maybe you can guess, but uh, guys had uh, let out too much out of the gate and the course was coming back to bite them because it turned out to be a surprisingly difficult course out there in the desert. It was still hot in November. There were these deceptive hills that you had to climb and climb and climb into a heavy wind and it started to heat up. And oh my gosh, I started to pass a bunch of people that had, that had left me behind on the first run. And when I uh, had my head down, pedaling as hard as I could, got into the bike racks for the final 10K run, I had unknowingly passed everybody on the course. So 10K left to go. Uh, I discovered early on because uh, this uh, press truck was following me and I asked them what place I was in. And they said, what are you talking about? You're, you're, you're in first place. And I uh, you know, screamed in delight and then ran like I stole something through the desert for that final 10K broke the tape at the finish line for the first time anywhere close in my professional career. And then uh, the media comes up and, and just mobs me at the finish, just like you see uh, for the winner. Uh, but they had two main questions for me. The first one was, what's your name? And the second one was, hey, did you, are you sure you did the entire course? <laughs> so after we got those matters settled, uh, I had a fun time, you know, launching my professional career into a new dimension. And as I said, at the uh, title of the race was the World Championship Series. So there was three identical races on the same course, each one six weeks apart, uh, taking you through the winter. So that meant that six weeks after my glorious victory, uh, I was a now uh, had a, a target on my back and everyone 
wanted to see if this guy was for real or if it was just a fluke because people uh, misplanned and mispaced on the course. So as I was training for the rematch, it was a really exciting time. I was getting calls from sponsors, the people that turned me down the year before. Uh, but there was a little bit of pressure mounting each successive day when I was thinking about you know going back out there and defending my title, something I couldn't even imagine previously to participating in that race. So as a way of kind of uh, blowing off some of that nervous energy and doing a final preparation event to give me the confidence that I needed uh, and the clear head that I needed to head to the race course and, and give my best effort, I did something super crazy uh, 10 days before uh, the, the, the second event in the series. And that was an all-out solo time trial on my bicycle 140 miles from Los Angeles to the middle of the Mojave Desert and the town of Barstow. Uh, so I left in the dark before it got light in LA and I just set an aggressive pace the entire ride, I barely stopped just to refill water, get a snack, and just had my head down, going as hard as I could. And when I got to the finish line, that Foster's Freeze in Barstow, I remember this amazing sensation of calmness and confidence came over me. And it wasn't as though I was all pumped up and certain that I was going to win the race. It was more that I was uh, content that I had prepared to the best of my ability, and that I was due to deliver a fantastic personal effort because it was a great workout. It was a breakthrough workout. But more importantly, uh, I was going to be at peace with whatever the uh, race outcome was. I wasn't scared of anything. I wasn't feeling the pressure to perform again. And if I delivered a great race and got 10th place, that would have been, uh, you know, okay, because you can't control those other things. And so having that, um, that comforting feeling that everything was going to be okay no matter what, uh, that I was ready to open it up and deliver a fantastic personal effort 10 days later that freed me from uh, allowing any uh, blocks or insecurities or negativity to percolate in my mind, which can, of course, uh, destroy your potential for peak performance. Uh, so when I got to Palm Springs for the weekend of the event, I remember as soon as I arrived at the hotel, uh, I'm noticing people be staring at me and pointing and whispering as I walk by. And there was the guy who stole the race the first time. And it was pretty uh, overwhelming. It was a lot to handle. And I feel like if I hadn't had that experience uh, riding to Barstow and do that, that calming exercise of blasting my brains out for 140 miles, uh, I might have cracked under the pressure that you just can't escape when you get to the race venue and the starting line and all the preparations and the uh, chances for nervousness to build. So again, here we go with this uh, race that I'd solved the puzzle the previous time of going slow out of the gate. So of course, I'm committed to doing the same thing, taking it easy. And uh, this time, instead of getting blown out by all the overexcited athletes, uh, about a mile into the first run, I look around and there's this huge pack right behind me on my shoulder uh, because they're keying off me now, finally. So uh, that was pretty funny. Uh, and I felt felt so comfortable, but I came in on the first run much faster than the previous day. So I knew I was in much better shape and I was ready to deliver a breakthrough performance. Uh, Souza, the fastest runner of them all in the sport and in the field, uh, was way ahead. But by mile 10 on the bike, I'd caught him and passed him really quickly and just carried on by myself into the desert uh, on this incredible uh, day of a, a performance that was far superior even to the great breakthrough race that I'd had.
had uh, six weeks prior. A uh, pretty good story. One of the greatest upsets uh, ever seen in the sport to date and chronicled in a magazine article titled King of the Desert. Uh, my Uncle Jack called me that for the 25 years following uh, the race. So that was pretty cool. And these victories for me uh, legitimize my my dream my hard efforts to become a professional athlete. I realized that I belong there now. And this teed up a nine-year odyssey on the global triathlon circuit. Uh, so and here's the thing. The, the blissful disposition and the pure motivation that facilitated those two amazing upset victories by this surprise athlete in the desert often got swallowed up. I often forgot about who that guy was that was just loving the journey and not worried about the pressure and the expectations heaped on you when you're in a professional career. No, I was often swallowed up by the measuring, judging forces of the modern world and the realities of professional athletics as a business and the athlete as a brand. <laughs> we never used that word back then, uh, but now everything's brand this and brand that. So I was the Brad Kearns brand and uh, had to face a lot of things that have a high potential for diluting the purity of the experience. And so what would happen was that allure of fixating on the results, the money that was out there. If you could come in first place, you made a lot more than when you came in fourth place. So it became kind of important. You know what I mean? Uh, but that allure... Uh, caused me to become influenced by pressure, ego demands, impatience, greed. And instead of taking what my body gave me each day and being satisfied, I would force the issue and overtrain. That was perhaps my biggest problem. This would lead, of course, to breakdown, burnout, illness, and injury. Like I talk about all the time on podcasts, do as I say, not as I did back then. Uh, but then what would happen is I would uh, often recalibrate. So this is the gift of uh, having a straightforward and intense and dramatic career where the results and the success and failure are so graphic. You can't hide from it. You can't rationalize or tell a story like you might be able to as you work your way up through the food chain in the corporate setting. So through the painful and raw self-reflection that defeat forces upon you, I would eventually reconnect with my source of power and contentment. I was a young guy, freed from that prison of the high-rise, pursuing a dream and challenging my body every day to improve in three sports. And I got to travel all over the world to compete with the very best. So what I would do is I'd get disgusted, burnt out, discouraged with bad results. I'd take a break from that heavy training that was chronically overtraining uh, back in the day. That's what we all did. We didn't have as sophisticated as a, uh, abilities now that we have to balance recovery, uh, but I'd take a vacation and then I'd eventually get up, get back into the groove and turn things around with good results and then keep that momentum going. So when I reached my peak in 1991, I won the national series title, the triathlon series at Olympic distance. It's known as the Bud Light Coke Grand Prix. And at that time, it had the richest prize purse in the sport. I also won the national sprint championship. You can see that video on YouTube, uh, navigating off my website and we got got the uh, wonderful overdubbing of the actual interview uh, into a funny exchange where I impersonate Mike Tyson and Andrew McNaughton impersonates a Scottish announcer that has obnoxious questions. <laughs> I also won the Pan Am ITU championship in Ixtapa, Mexico and ended the season ranked number three in the world. Uh, when that hard work pays off and you get into a good rhythm as an athlete, things feel easy. I remember after several of my best victories, 
feeling like I'd barely exerted myself and wondering why my main competitors weren't able to keep pace on the steep hills of the bike course. Alas, the experience of being in the zone is fleeting, and after a binge of 45 races, including 15 victories, a seven-race win streak, and 80,000 miles on Pan Am Airlines over my two best years of 1990 and 1991, I was totally cooked. And when the season ended, it ended on a high note in 1991 with a great win in Israel, I was exhausted and had to sleep 12 hours every single night and take it easy for the entire winter. I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near for red light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes. And there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to right get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period and a special 5% discount for BRAD podcast listeners. Just visit mitoredlight, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. And guess what? <laughs> Unlike other years, that feeling of deep exhaustion never quite cleared when I returned to training, travel, and competition. Of course, I was only, what, 27, 28 years old, but I had already burnt out my candle, more or less, and I hung on for a couple more years, probably a couple more years too long because I was starting to get my butt kicked, uh, but that was my peak, and that was that, and that's the way it goes uh, at elite-level sport. Of course, if I had to do things over, I could have uh, moderated 
generated some of that high stress pattern. But I also reflect back thinking that, you know, if I'd worked that hard for that many years and dedicated my life so deeply to uh, going for the win and going for those, uh, you know, highlights, those peak performances, uh, I might as well grab them while I was at it, knowing that it was probably uh, coming at a sacrifice to my longevity. In other words, I'd trade perhaps one victory for a handful of fifth place finishes. And that also goes for the financial aspects of it, the way the sport was situated uh, during my career. (laughs) Okay, so pretty soon it was all over. The signs, the writing was on the wall. Reimmersion into real life was challenging. I have an article on my website called How to Retire at 30, where I make light of uh, having to move on from being an athlete and uh, jumping into the, uh, the, the workforce, the real life. Uh, but I carried with me valuable character lessons learned through pushing my physical limits, overcoming my fears, and striving to accept both victory and defeat gracefully. I have a maxim that sums up the most valuable attributes that I learned in the most intense and dramatic of competitive arenas, that is athletics. It applies to all other peak performance goals I've pursued in my life, like parenting and career goals and anything else. Oh, you know what it is? Get over yourself. (laughs) Yes, that's why this is the title of my podcast. I'm talking mostly to myself. I'm not trying to be snarky to the audience. But what it describes is cultivating a pure motivation for peak performance goals, releasing the attachment of your self-esteem to the outcome, and thereby unleashing a healthy competitive intensity to be the best that you can be. The late Sir Roger Bannister of Great Britain, the first human to break four minutes in the mile back in 1954, put it this way in one of the great sports quotes of all time, quote, the essence of sport is that while you're doing it, nothing else matters. But after you stop, there's a place, generally not very important, where you would put it. And you can take the word sport and fill in the blank for whatever challenge or peak performance goal you're facing in life. Next section is maintaining the edge. So now I've been retired from the triathlon circuit for so long, over 25 years, I've forgotten most everything about that life except for the details of my 31 victories. Thank you very much. However, I'm striving to maintain passion and competitive intensity for the rest of my life. My dad, Dr. Walter Kearns, was a great role model in this area. He passed away in 2019 at age 97 after a fantastic life, and he was an absolute golfing phenom for decades. He played in the U.S. Amateur at age 19 while he was the captain of the Princeton Golf team, and 52 years later at age 71, he again competed in his national championship, the U.S. Senior Amateur. This is believed, especially by members of the Kearns family, uh, nothing official, but it's got to be a record span between qualifying for the U.S. Amateur, America's most prestigious tournament. Walter was undoubtedly the top golfer in the world over age 90 for several years. He shot an even par 71 at the age of 87 and a 76 at the age of 92. Shooting 16 strokes under your age on a championship golf course is at or near the best ever known in golf annals. And beginning with his first time under his age when he shot a four under par 66 at the age of 67, Walter shot his age nearly 2,000 
thousand times over the ensuing 30 years. In other words, when he went out to play golf, he was going to shoot his age unless he had an absolutely horrible round. So it's like we stopped counting after it got to a thousand. Another thing he did was he liked to hit the ball into the hole in what's known as a hole in one. And if you're a golfer, you know how extraordinarily rare these are. Most people uh, never get one. Some people get once in a lifetime. And he had 11 in his golfing career, including, get this, five hole-in-ones in five years after turning age 80. <laughs> I unfortunately didn't get to see any of those because he was playing with his own buddies or whatever. And uh, so he would call me up, of course, to report the news. And, you know, I'd, I'd get on the phone and he'd say, yeah, I played out there at Lakeside today and I got around to the sixth hole and I took out a six iron. And guess what? I knocked it into the cup for a hole in one and I'd scream on the other end of the phone line. That's amazing. Who were you playing with? What'd you shoot? And then as these calls came in succession, you know, when you get the third or fourth or fifth phone call and he starts out, well, I uh, was over at Braemar and we got around to the sixth hole and I'm going, oh no, 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 no. Oh my God. Yeah. So anyway, Walter enjoyed the game of golf at all times and the challenge of hitting every single shot to the best of his ability. He worked so hard to be the best player he could be throughout his life, right up into his final shot that he took days before he died. And he applied that same passion and focus to his career as a general surgeon. When he retired from his practice in Los Angeles at 71, he was asked to go out to the Indian Reservation on the Navajo Nation uh, near the four corners of Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah. And he worked there for six years, twice as long as he was uh, asked to, because he just loved surgery and making a contribution. And even when when he was retired with that, he volunteered at medical clinics in Los Angeles and maintained his medical license until he was 95 years old. Yeah, retirement, sitting around, overrated people, find some passion and some competitive intensity and maintain it throughout life. The next stage of the story is called MVP. Well, I love that all-consuming experience that was training and racing the professional triathlon circuit, but it's much better to recognize and be willing to gracefully transition through distinct phases in life and always look for exciting new challenges and growth opportunities. Yes, thank you for that insight, Brad. And this mature, self-aware, evolved, high-minded perspective combined with getting my butt kicked routinely in the last two years on the circuit, inspired me to put my ego and my passport in a drawer, get a real freaking job, and start raising a family. So, speaking of maintaining competitive intensity, my athletic focus went from swim, bike, run to dominating little kids in soccer, basketball, and track for a decade that I served as a ridiculously enthusiastic participatory coach. Starting with first graders, Let me tell you, in all honesty, I was the MVP on every single team, every year in every sport. I was unstoppable, unguardable, relentless. I was a picture of athletic wonderment for these young kids that couldn't believe their eyes of the skills and total domination that I exhibited at every single practice. Yeah, guess what? Uh, By the time my son and his buddies reached high school, I had been very quickly transitioned from MVP to caught and passed, and not even uh, a caliber of sitting on the bench. So I was left to clap in the stands. 
Uh, remember we had these uh, Sunday night open gym basketball pickup games where the high school players would come and I would take my son there. He was just a freshman, not driving yet. And uh, the freshman players, the JV, the varsity players would all mix in the gym and we'd form these three-on-three teams and have rotating court battles. And oh my gosh, I would get so psyched and I'd play so hard and I love playing against these guys. And uh, then uh, one night uh, I'm driving home after the fantastic outing in the gym and my son goes, "Uh, yeah, dad, you know what? I don't need a ride uh, anymore to uh, Sunday night. I can get a ride from Josh. And I'm like, oh no, I, I don't mind at all, man. I love out, I love going out there and playing. It's it's fun. This is great. He goes, oh, well, you know, you, you don't have to play anymore either. <laughs> so that was his nicest way of saying that um, I really couldn't guard any of the high school players, their quickness, their size anymore. So there you go. And uh, parents listening, guess what? This story, this account is just as it should be. Yes, you want to get in there with the little guys. And I strongly believe in showing them uh, some competitive intensity and not backing off and being patsy cake. So, you know, my son and I would play one-on-one in basketball basketball for years, starting when he was whatever, 11 and 12. We had a rule that I couldn't use my height to score easy baskets. Otherwise, I would play my hardest. And we played when he was 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. And then I remember he finally beat me. And I'm playing, you know, full tilt, of course, when he was, I don't know, 15 or 16. And he never asked to play again. He just had to get to that point. And then it was time for dad to step off the train. And we want these parents to know how to step aside and become really good at clapping, supporting, and letting your offspring become their own persons. Be like the caddy on the golf course, handing the requested club to the player, but not taking the shots for them. Yes, it was again time to transition for myself and plunge into a different athletic passion than being the MVP of the little kids team. And that's when I discovered speed golf, sprinting, and high jump. The theme here is to find endeavors that you love, appreciate the process, even if you suck at first, and strive for continued improvement. So over the past five years, it's been really fun and interesting to strike a balance between being a has-been focused on real-life responsibilities and somehow keeping the Olympic flame burning. Uh, My pursuit of the Guinness World Record in speed golf was a great example of this. And I did a whole show uh, talking about that journey and the amazing uh, insights I I learned and the ways I could leverage this pursuit of a peak competitive goal into all other areas of my life. So just briefly, because I'd love for you to listen to this show. there was a uh, an offshoot of the proper sport of speed golf where we play 18 holes, keep score, and keep our time and add them together. Uh, some guy on YouTube in United Kingdom, Steve Jeffs, put up this viral video. Uh, it was on the Guinness World Record site of him playing a single hole, and they established a world record for the fastest single hole of golf ever played. Of course, it had to be 500 yards in length, so like a par five. You can't just do it on a, on a short hole. So this standard of 500-yard hole, uh, I watched this guy on the video flying along, carrying his little speed golf bag, hitting his shots really quickly, and busting up the record. He got dogpiled by his family on the green. It's one of the greatest videos. It's so exciting. You got to look it up and watch it. And uh, I said, you know what? Uh, that's that's pretty cool. And I'm, I'm such a devoted sprinter and one of the top 20 speed golf players in the world. I'm going to go bust this record up uh, right away, just for the heck of it. So I went out there the next day, uh, waited till dark at the end of my round, because you can't do this while other players are on the course. And I thought, okay, here I go. The record time is 150. And I did really well. I was running fast, hit some good shots, stopped the watch, two minutes and 12 seconds, 22 seconds slower than the record. 
And I was like, holy crap, <laughs> that, that's no joke there. So the next day I went out and sprinted even faster because I'm frustrated that I'm that far behind. Uh, but of course, the shots were pretty sloppy. So I turned in a 213. And I was like, wow, okay, I am hooked. I am going to go after this. I am getting the competitive intensity riled up. I discovered Steve's email uh, from the speed golf community and I sent him an email. And I'm like, dude, I saw your video. That's pretty fantastic. Guess what? I went out there and tried it and I was way off. How the heck did you do it? And he wrote a wonderful note back and he says, let me tell you something. I played that hole of golf a thousand times in preparation because I want to know exactly where to hit the ball and exactly how to do everything to have the easiest putt. And I practice and practice and practice before that big day. And this really flipped a switch on me because I realized it was time to get serious and adopt a methodical and strategic approach to a peak performance goal. And here in adult life, that's really, it really hasn't been my strength. I've already been consumed and been there, done that with the triathlon scene and all that trainings required and the adult uh, amateur triathletes who have to squeeze all those different workouts into their busy life already. That really wasn't for me. And I was just uh, kind of enjoying the folly of pursuing these competitive goals uh, kind of on whim. So, you know, when it was soccer season, all of a sudden I'd become uh, the, the star soccer player of the seventh grade team. And then it was track season. I'd go out there and have fun with the high jump, but I wouldn't be in training or anything formal and serious. But this goal warranted it, which was really nice, uh, especially because getting involved with these folks at Guinness is ridiculously painstaking and precise, and you have to submit all this information, and the formal application takes 12 weeks to get approved, and then they send you an email back like, okay, thumbs up, go for it, try to break the record, and here are the guidelines that you have to have. <sighs> you need uh, a, like 10 people, seriously for an official record attempt. You need two official timers. You need a video person. You need a photographer. You need two official witnesses with previous golf expertise to verify the attempt was legit and sign a sworn statement accordingly. And you need two, quote, independent observers who I hadn't met prior because I didn't want them to have a vested interest in my success. Oh my gosh, all the rigmarole, but all that time going through the application process uh, was really fun because it got me focused and inspired. And one of the main things I tried to do to innovate uh, to try to break this record was instead of carrying a bag like the previous record holder, I made myself learn how to hit every shot with just one club, a three wood. So I would practice chipping and putting every day with a three wood and learning these new skills that, uh, you know, took me away from the tradition of, of real golf and using the putter. But it was this nice little journey in my life where I'd have a practice session in the evening at the golf course where it was time to get focused and serious and try to sink those putts with the crazy club. So when record day came and I got that same sensation, those butterflies in the stomach that a real athlete gets that I hadn't really felt for 20 plus years since I left the pro circuit, right? Because all these people are counting on you. You got kind of a scene at the golf course, right? There's 10 people milling around, getting into golf courts and going to this one hole. And I'm jogging out there, uh, you know, doing my strides and looking like I don't belong on the golf course. Uh, I was feeling the pressure because uh, uh, Maria and Sean, my, my sister and brother-in-law, drove three hours to come support me. So I'm like, I got to bring my A game here, man. I hired a drone guy, a drone operator to get some cool footage from above. And the other thing about this uh, single whole world record is it's pretty much of a do or die because you're allowed multiple attempts, right? But if I'm sprinting 500 yards as fast as I can, 
every successive attempt from the first one, I'm going to be a lot slower. And I learned that uh, the first time I broke the record because I kind of had a better effort the second time through, uh, but it was slower because I was so much slower running. So I broke the record in Sacramento. It was a wonderful uh, occasion, sharing it with friends and family. And then I decided, hey, why not go for it again? So I, I teed it up again in Los Angeles a month later, broke the record again, and had the absolute miracle performance that I describe on the podcast because I made a birdie four, basically hitting four perfect shots with a three-wood, including a difficult chip and sinking the putt. I mean, I don't make that many birdies on a regular golf round, but I made it while I was sprinting absolutely absolutely full speed on the very first try. It's something I couldn't duplicate if I tried it a hundred times and one of the great athletic memories of my life. And the cool thing is, obviously, this was just for fun and games and there's Guinness World Records for eating the most peanut butter sandwiches uh, upside down and, and all the rest of that nonsense. Uh, so you can't really compare it to uh, winning a big race on the professional circuit, winning the Coke Grand Prix and getting money to put a down payment on a house and all those high stakes things. However, because of my mind mindset, it meant just as much to me uh, in that context as doing what I was doing as an athlete and getting on ESPN and all that fun stuff. And same with high jumping now. I'm practicing most often in a completely empty high school athletic field. But when I clear that bar and, and set a new best for the, for the year or the season, um, I'm screaming with delight like I'm in the Olympic Stadium uh, jumping for a medal. And if you look at my uh, YouTube high jump instruction video at the end, uh, I show a clip of me clearing uh, my best height and I'm screaming uh, with delight while I'm still in the air. Ah, yes. Now, I want to make an important clarification about the, uh, the Guinness record pursuit. Uh, because you can watch me on YouTube, Breaking the Record. It's a fun video. My buddies, my family are all there. I'm getting interviewed, having fun with it. Uh, but it, it's not really just for fun. Even though there's no economic consequences or life or death circumstances, uh, you know, fun is one thing. And every minute of this process was certainly fun and rewarding. But the pursuit was more than just for fun. It was for personal growth and a catalyst to leverage the focus, discipline, and risk-taking required in athletics into all other areas areas of life. The greatest happiness and fulfillment in life come when you cultivate and express passion, curiosity, enthusiasm, and pursuit of the highest expression of your talents without compromise or excuses. The trick is to keep things in perspective to get over yourself such that you cultivate a pure motivation for your peak performance goals. And that means a deep appreciation for the process and releasing your attachment of self-esteem to the outcome. Next section is toe the line. Watch out, people, because a highly disturbing alternative option is trying to lure you in these days. That is, to indulge in the many luxuries, conveniences, and non-stop entertainment opportunities that the high-tech modern world offers to become today a professional spectator. Yes, you can get some deserved instant gratification, stress release, and entertainment value from watching the NFL Red Zone on Sunday or tracking your bets every single day during March Madness, but you are going to slowly and imperceptibly lose your edge and extinguish your competitive spirit over time. In the process, you will track toward the epic Teddy Roosevelt quote about the poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in a gray twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. 
Essentially, my mission is to help you wake up, light up, and get the juices flowing again. Say what you want to say about my rambling accounts of my speed golf world record, or this meet Brad story, or the details of my high jump exploits that I'll put on Instagram or whatever, but I'm here to be myself, share my enthusiastic message, and make a positive impact on your life. I want to be a leader in the battle against the aforementioned health-destructive influences of the soft and easy life, including the ridiculous marketing hype, flawed science, propaganda, and misinformation shoved down your throat in the health, diet, and fitness scene. Here are some important things that I want you to get about my approach. I'm promoting peak performance and competitive intensity, but not in the typically flawed way that we've been socialized into. With big money modern sports, the popularity race of social media, the college admission bribing parenting trend, we've forgotten about the pure joy of the journey, towing the line, giving your very best effort, and achieving the unsurpassed self-satisfaction that a healthy competitive disposition allows. Hey, that sounds like my former basketball coach, John Wooden's Pyramid of Success. Uh, yeah, I was a camper at his summer camp. Does that count for him being my former coach? I think so. Unfortunately, the evolved ideals and character values communicated by Bannister and Wooden have been pretty much dissed these days in 280 characters or whatever. Instead, we proceed with a win-at-all-cost mentality and an attachment of self-esteem to results. Remember, Coach Wooden said, quote, Worrying about the scoreboard is a big mistake. Focus on the perfect execution of every possession, end quote. Ah, long since forgotten. Even by college basketball coaches, you know, the people who should honor him more than anyone. Forget about the business world and all the other nonsense that's going on. Today's scoreboard suggests that happiness is actually accessed with a Beamer, a kid on the all-star team or the honor roll, or through Amazon Prime. Well, Amazon Prime does make me pretty happy, so let me take that one back. It's better than facing the glitz and the marketing propaganda at the shopping mall, right? At least you get to be in control of your purchases rather than lured in because you're tired and hungry and there's a sale sign and some eager, smiling salesperson beckoning you to come in and get happy by buying the stuff in their store. Oh my gosh, that happened to me one time in a shopping mall. You know those kiosks in the middle where they're uh, doing the makeup samples and uh, the people are standing there really friendly trying to get people to stop by and check things out. And so I was walking by a person on a purpose in some shopping mall many years ago. Oh, actually, not that many. Let's say 10 years ago. And... Um, there's this uh, nice-looking uh, young lady, uh, you know, the front person for the operation, and she locks in and makes eye contact with me as I'm walking toward and uh, past the thing, and she uh, she won't uh, she won't break, and so I smile back, try to be polite, and then she like uh, does the beckoning sound with your hand, like hey you you come over here. <laughs> I'm like, me? Okay. So I go over there. I go, hi there. What's up? She goes, hello. You know, what's your name? Uh, da, 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 da. And she says, I have something that can fix your wrinkles. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I thought I was special and she was just picking me out because uh, whatever. Okay. Uh, I, I turned her down, actually. I said, I'm, I'm good with my wrinkles right now, but I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Thank you for the, uh, the flattering, I guess, uh, solicitation. Okay, back to the story. So what's the problem? 
with obsessing on the trappings of success? Well, when we succeed with tangible goals, we create outsized egos. When we don't bring home the gold or the silver or the bronze, it's easy to get discouraged, disenchanted, and negative. In Mark Manson, my former podcast guest, wonderful show, please listen to him, and read his best-selling books, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, and his sequel, Everything is Fucked, a book about hope, he does a great job calling out how ridiculous our cultural programming is. There's some great quotes that really get you thinking. I know you need the context to fully appreciate it, but let me hit you with some because it's pretty eye-opening. Mark Manson says, quote, identity doesn't exist. It's arbitrary. It's a facade. Set a goal of maintaining an identity that is defined by as little as possible. Instead, see your life as a series of decisions and actions. Nothing more. And another quote, self-worth is an illusion and actually a form of persistent low-level narcissism. Whoa, what are you talking about? A healthy self-worth is important. That's one of my main goals for my children when I'm raising them. Ah, you know what? This insight hit me hard because that's what get over yourself is after all. It's transitioning from the obsession with self-worth, self-esteem, and instead seeing your life as just a series of decisions and actions. You ain't hot shit, but you got to do the best you can and, you know, deliver peak performance effort for the sake of doing it. So be present, focus on the process, get out of that FOMO mindset that my former podcast guest, Dr. Ron Sinha, on his show identified as an actual disease state with harmful metabolic consequences. FOMO leads to higher stress hormones, high blood pressure, suppressed immune function, all due to rat race influences. Ashley Merriman, my former podcast guest, best-selling author, also weighs in here talking about the, uh, the self-esteem movement that started in the 70s as highly problematic in many ways. Uh, her book, Nurture Shock, written with Poe Bronson, talking about uh, parenting as the main topic, offers up a harsh criticism of today's everyone gets a trophy ideology because it takes the emphasis off of what gives us humans the most happiness and contentment in life. And that is, in Ashley's words, making an effort toward improvement. Not just making the effort, she clarified that uh, now it's a little more nuanced, that just going out there and making an effort every day, that's wonderful, focusing on the effort rather than the end result. But we also want that effort to lead toward improvement so we're not making an effort banging our head against the wall. Uh, furthering this thought, further insights, you can find on my Breather Show, where I talked about Dr. Robert Lustig's book, The Hacking of the American Mind. And Lustig makes a case that today— Modern, profit-seeking corporate entities are hijacking the human dopamine pathways to make us addicts to instant gratification pleasures at the expense of a happy, fulfilling life. Because a happy, meaningful, fulfilling life comes from struggling with long-term challenges, persevering through difficulty, finding pursuits that have deep meaning to you. And these are associated with the hormones and neurotransmitters like serotonin and oxytocin. Those are things that... Uh, make you feel connected, bonded, content, as opposed to instant gratification, that dopamine burst that we're so familiar with. Uh, so you have reward and you have contentment. So the instant reward, dopamine pathway, contentment, the serotonin pathway. And Lustig says that all these modern vices attack the same hormonal response in the brain such that we become flooded with dopamine. We become addicts to instant gratification at the expense 
of that long-term happiness and contentment. And you're familiar with the the modern vices. Lustig uh, talks about sugar because that's his uh, main life's work is the crusade against sugar and how that gives us the dopamine hit at the expense of uh, being able to adhere to healthy dietary habits. We have digital technology and hyperconnectivity and social media, especially because it offers intermittent variable rewards. I have a couple shows on tech addiction and how compelling it is to pick up the phone and find a new dopamine trigger every single time. Uh, all, all the street drugs and the prescription drugs often can fall into this category of being uh, pleasure sensations, you know, instant gratification at the expense of uh, long-term health. And of course, uh, the last two are particularly problematic. Uh, John Gray talks about this too, as well as Lustig, and those would be uh, video games and porn addiction. These two largely being the domains of the young male, uh, they represent the male's primary biological drives, which are to pursue challenges, solve problems, master one's environment, uh, uh, often in the quest for the deep biological drive uh, for sexual gratification. So now you can get both of these on the screen such that the male is no longer incentivized to engage in real-life challenges. Why hassle with a high-maintenance girlfriend (laughs) or an actual job when you can go and conquer in the video game in a nice controlled environment that gives you that amazing instant gratification payoff. (sighs) I like to share these uh, Mark Manson quotes with my kids because it serves as a counter to a society where, especially for young people that are forming their self-identity and and going through the the basics of getting an education and pursuing a career, they get brainwashed into attaching self-esteem to results. And it's all our fault. Everyone surrounding them, even well-meaning family members, when you introduce your kid at the family picnic and it's, oh, uh, this is my son, uh, he's a basketball player, and here's my daughter, she's a saxophone player. Like, how could you not attach your self-identity to that when you're paraded around as like a show pony? That's why in the great article, The Inverse Power of Praise, I did a whole show on it, they make a compelling suggestion in the article that maybe instead of saying, I'm proud of you for graduating high school, or I'm proud of you for scoring the winning basket, that you rephrase that to favor saying you should be proud of yourself for what you accomplished, or at the very least, uh, don't attach this parental pride to uh, accomplishments. You can say, I'm proud of the young man that you've grown up to be, or something like that, proud of your character, uh, but let them own their uh, own performances and successes rather than uh, being a show pony. Uh, So I had to learn the hard way as a young athlete that attachment is not a path to happiness, not just in competitive athletics, but also with parenting, career goals, financial security aspirations, or even healthy relationship dynamics. And while people can often achieve superficial material success with a flawed mindset, it's also likely to come with a sense of emptiness and negative energy in general. Look no further than the prominent athletes and celebrities with tremendous material success, but live in train wreck lives. section is titled Getting Over Ourselves. The sweet spot is to cultivate the beautiful passion, curiosity, and competitive intensity that makes us human, but also release the attachment of your self-esteem to the outcome. This aligns with Ashley Merriman's giving effort toward improvement, Mark Manson's seeing your life as a series of decisions and actions, And on that note, Manson elaborates to say that happiness can be accessed by improving self-discipline because that gives you freedom. Hey, Jocko says the same thing. Discipline equals freedom. 
Okay, so you know what my mofo partner Brian Liver King Johnson of Ancestral Supplement says? He says, do something that scares the shit out of you every day. It's time to destroy and reframe your self-limiting beliefs and behavior patterns and take some radical action to make today a special day and a catalyst for change. Of course, physical pursuits are a great vehicle because today we operate so much from our heads, interacting with machines, too much sedentary patterns and stillness. So getting out there and doing something like a physical challenge, wonderful. But you can also model this evolved competitive spirit as an artist or as a musician. Just realize that our genes crave frequent everyday movement, as well as brief explosive efforts to be truly healthy, happy, and fit. And finally, because modern life is so stressful and serious, and because posers and manipulative marketing forces and general insincerity lurk around every corner, my message is wrapped and airbrushed in humor, irreverence, and general goofiness whenever possible. Whenever the circumstances and opportunities are appropriate, such as adding a spicy accent to an otherwise normal reading... As an athlete, husband, parent, content creator, and peak performance motivator, this allows me to bring the most honesty, authenticity, vulnerability, sensitivity. Do we have some other buzzwords? Have a little sensitivity. Do me, baby. I want to get rubbed the right way. So what you got to say? Oh, no, she's a candy girl living in a half crazy world. That's the way I live in, girl. So every little step I take is another ending heartbreak. My, my, my. That song's Word to the Mother by Bill Bib DeVoe and back to the show. Thank you so much for listening to my story. I hope you enjoy many other podcast episodes and the fun and games offered at bradkearns.com, videos, books, and cool products that I believe in and use every single day. And finally, I want this to be a community experience where you can offer up questions, comments, suggestions, critique on my accents and my rapping, all manner of feedback we appreciate about the show that our whole team will listen to and deeply appreciate. So please email anytime, anytime you got something on your mind, get over yourself podcast at gmail.com. Go ahead and do it after every show. You can become a remote executive producer. Why not? And that is the Meet Brad Show. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the show. We would love your feedback at getoveryourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And we would also love if you could leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a hassle. You have to go to desktop iTunes, click on the tab that says ratings and reviews, and then click to rate the show anywhere from five to five stars. And it really helps spread the word so more people can find the show and get over themselves because they need to. Thanks for doing it.